Domine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us, save but you, our God. The following is a reading from Dom Prosper Karen Jay's Liturgical Year. The Mystery of Passion Tide and Holy Week. The Holy Liturgy is rich in mystery during these days of the churches celebrating the anniversaries of so many wonderful events. But as the principal part of these mysteries is embodied in the rites and ceremonies of the respective days, we shall give our explanations according to the occasion, as the occasion presents itself. Our object in the present chapter is to say a few words respecting the general character of the mysteries of these two weeks. We have nothing to add to the explanation already given in our Lent of the mystery of forty. The holy season of expiation continues its course until the fast of sinful men has imitated in its duration that observed by the man-god in the desert. The army of Christ's faithful children is still fighting against the invisible enemies of man's salvation. They are still vested in their spiritual armor and aided by the angels of light. They are struggling hand to hand with the spirits of darkness by compunction of heart and by mortification of the flesh. As we have already observed, there are three objects which principally engage the thoughts of the church during Lent. The passion of our Redeemer, which we have felt to be coming nearer to us each week. The preparation of the catechumens for baptism, which is to be administered to them on Easter Eve. The reconciliation of the public penitents, who are to be readmitted into the church on the Thursday, the day of the Last Supper. Each of these three objects engages more and more the intention of the church the nearer she approaches the time of their celebration. The miracle performed by our Savior almost at the very gates of Jerusalem, by which he restored Lazarus to life, has roused the fury of his enemies to the highest pitch of frenzy. The people's enthusiasm has been excited by seeing him, who had been four days in the grave, walking in the streets of their city. They ask each other, if the Messiah, who when he comes, can work greater wonders than these done by Jesus, and whether they ought not at once to receive this Jesus as the Messiah and sing their Hosanna to him, for he is the son of David. They cannot contain their feelings. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and they welcome him as their king. The high priests and princes of the people are alarmed at this demonstration of feeling. They have no time to lose. They are resolved to destroy Jesus. We are going to assist at their impious conspiracy. The blood of the just man is to be sold, and the price put on it is thirty pieces of silver. The divine victim, betrayed by one of his disciples, is to be judged, condemned, and crucified. Every circumstance of this awful tragedy is to be put before us by the liturgy, not merely in words but with all the expressiveness of a sublime ceremonial. The catechumens have but a few more days to wait for the fount that is to give them life. Each day their instruction becomes fuller. The figures of the old law are being explained to them, and very little now remains for them to learn with regard to the mysteries of salvation. The symbol of faith is soon to be delivered to them. Initiated into the glories and the humiliations of the Redeemer, they will await with the faithful the moment of his glorious resurrection and we shall accompany them with our prayers and hymns at that solemn hour, when, leaving the defilements of sin in the life-giving waters of the font, they shall come forth pure and radiant with innocence, 
be enriched with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and be fed with the divine flesh of the Lamb that liveth forever. The reconciliation of the penitents, too, is close at hand. Clothed in sackcloth and ashes, they are continuing their work of expiation. The Church has still several passages from the Sacred Scriptures to read to them, which, like those we have already heard during the last few weeks, will breathe consolation and refreshment to their souls. The near approach of the day when the Lamb is to be slain increases their hope, for they know that the blood of this Lamb is of infinite worth and can take away the sins of the whole world. Before the day of Jesus' resurrection, they will have recovered their lost innocence. Their pardon will come in time to enable them, like the penitent prodigal, to join in the great banquet of that Thursday, when Jesus will say to his guests, With desire I have desired to eat this Pasch with you before I suffer. Such are the sublime subjects which are about to be brought before us. But at the same time, we shall see our Holy Mother the Church mourning like a disconsolate widow, and sad be all human grief. Hitherto she has been weeping over the sins of her children. Now she bewails the death of her divine spouse. The joyous Alleluia has long since been hushed in her canticles. She is now going to suppress another expression, which seems too glad for a time like the present. Partially at first, but entirely during the last three days, she is about to deny herself the use of that formula which is so dear to her. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. There is an accent of jubilation in these words, which would ill-suit her grief and the mournfulness of the rest of her chants. Her lessons for the night office are taken from Jeremiah, the prophet of lamentation above all others. The color of her vestments is the one she had on which she assembled us at the commencement of Lent to sprinkle us with ashes. But when the dreaded day of Good Friday comes, purple would not sufficiently express the depth of her grief. She will clothe herself in black, as men do when mourning the death of a fellow mortal. For Jesus, her spouse, is to be put to death on that day. The sins of mankind and the rigors of the divine justice are then to weigh him down, and in all the realities of a last agony, he is to yield up his soul to his Father. The presentiment of that awful hour leads the afflicted mother to veil the image of her Jesus. The cross is hidden from the eyes of the faithful. The statues of the saints, too, are covered. For it is but just that, if the glory of the Master be eclipsed, the servant should not appear. The interpreters of the liturgy tell us that this ceremony of veiling the crucifix during Passiontide expresses the humiliation to which our Savior subjected himself of hiding himself when the Jews threatened to stone him as is related in the Gospel of Passion Sunday. The Church begins the solemn rite with the Vespers of this Saturday before Passion Sunday. Thus it is that in those years when the Feast of Our Lady's Annunciation falls in Passion Week, the statue of Mary, the Mother of God, remains veiled even on that very day when the Archangel greets her as being full of grace and blessed among women. Practice during Passion Tide in Holy Week The past four weeks seem to have been but a preparation for the intense grief of the church during these two. She knows that men are in search of her Jesus and that they are bent on his death. Before twelve days are over, she will see them lay their sacrilegious hands upon him. 
she will have to follow him up to the hill of Calvary. She will have to receive his last breath. She must witness the stone placed against the sepulchre where his lifeless body is laid. We cannot therefore be surprised at her inviting all her children to contemplate during these weeks him who is the object of all her love and all her sadness. But our mother asks something more of us than compassion and tears. She would have us profit by the lessons we are to be taught by the passion and death of our Redeemer. He himself, when going up to Calvary, said to the holy women who had the courage to show their compassion even before his very executioners, Weep not over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It was not that he refused the tribute of their tears, for he was pleased with this proof of their affection, but it was his love for them that made him speak thus. He desired above all to see them appreciate the importance of what they were witnessing and learn from it how inexorable is God's justice against sin. During the four weeks that have preceded, the church has been leading the sinner to his conversion. So far, however, this conversion has been but begun. Now she would perfect it. It is no longer our Jesus fasting and praying in the desert that she offers to our consideration. It is the same Jesus as the great victim immolated for the world's salvation. The fatal hour is at hand. The power of darkness is preparing to make use of the time that is still left. The greatest of crimes is about to be perpetrated. A few days hence, the Son of God is to be in the hands of sinners, and they will put him to death. The church no longer needs to urge her children to repentance. They know too well now what sin must be when it could require such expiation as this. She is all absorbed in the thought of the terrible event, which is to close the life of the God-man on earth. And by expressing her thoughts through the Holy Liturgy, she teaches us what our sentiments should be. The pervading character of the prayers and rites of these two weeks is a profound grief at seeing the just one persecuted by his enemies even to death, and an energetic indignation against the deicides. The formulas expresses of these two feelings are, for the most part, taken from David and the prophets. Here it is our Savior himself disclosing to us the anguish of his soul, There it is the church pronouncing the most terrible anathemas upon the executioners of Jesus. The chastisement that is to befall the Jewish nation is prophesied in all its frightful details. And on the last three days we shall hear the prophet Jeremiah uttering his lamentations over the faithless city. The church does not aim at exciting idle sentiment. What she principally seeks is to impress the hearts of her children with a salutary fear. If Jerusalem's crimes strike them with horror, and if they feel that they have partaken in her sin, their tears will flow in abundance. Let us therefore do our utmost to receive these strong impressions, too little known, alas, by the superficial piety of these times. Let us reflect upon the love and affection of the Son of God, who has treated his creatures with such unlimited confidence, lived their own life, spent his three and thirty years amidst them, not only humbly and peaceably, but in going about doing good. And now this life of kindness, condescension, and humility is to be cut short by the disgraceful death which none but slaves endured, the death of the cross. Let us consider, on the one side, this sinful people, who, having no crimes to lay to Jesus' charge, accuse him 
of his benefits and carry their detestable ingratitude to such a pitch as to shed the blood of this innocent and divine lamb. And then let us turn to this Jesus, the just by excellence, and see him become a prey to every bitterest suffering, his soul sorrowful even unto death. Weighed down by the malediction of our sins, drinking even to the very dregs the chalice he so humbly asks his father to take from him. And lastly, let us listen to his dying words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This it is that fills the church with her immense grief. This it is that she proposes to our consideration. For she knows that if we once rightly understood the sufferings of her Jesus, our attachments to sin must needs be broken. For by sin we make ourselves guilty of the crime we detest in these Jews. But the church knows, too, how hard is the heart of man, and how to make him resolve on a thorough conversion he must be made to fear. For this reason she puts before us these awful imprecations, which the prophets, speaking in Jesus' person, pronounced against them that put our Lord to death. These prophetic anathemas were literally fulfilled against the obdurate Jews. They teach us what the Christian also must expect if, as the apostle so forcibly expresses it, we again crucify the Son of God. In listening to what the church now speaks to us, we cannot but tremble as we recall to mind those other words of the same apostle. How much more, think ye, doth he deserve worse punishment, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath esteemed the blood of the testament unclean, as though it were some vile thing, by which he was sanctified, and hath offered an affront to the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said it, Vengeance belongeth to me, and I will repay. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful indeed it is. Oh, what a lesson God gives us of his inexorable justice during these days of the Passion. He that spared not even his own son, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, will he spare us if, after all the graces he has bestowed upon us, he should find us in sin, which he so unpitifully chastised even in Jesus, when he took it upon himself that he might atone for it? Considerations such as these, the justice of God towards the most innocent and august of victims, and the punishments that befell the impenitent Jews, most must surely destroy within us every affection to sin, for they will create within us that salutary fear which is the solid foundation of firm hope and tender love. For if by our sins we have made ourselves guilty of the death of the Son of God, it is equally true that the blood which flowed from his sacred wounds has the power to cleanse us from the guilt of our crime. The justice of our Heavenly Father cannot be appeased save by the shedding of this precious blood, and the mercy of the same Father wills that it be spent for our ransom. The cruelty of Jesus' execution has made five wounds in his sacred body, and from these there flow five sources of salvation which purify the world and restore within each one of us the image of God which sin has destroyed. Let us then approach with confidence to this redeeming blood which throws open to the sinner the gates of heaven and whose worth is such that it could redeem a million worlds were they even more guilty than ours. We are close upon the anniversary of the day when it was shed, 
Long ages have passed away since it flowed down the wounded body of our Jesus and fell in streams from the cross upon the un- this ungrateful earth, and yet its power is as great as ever. Let us go then and draw from the Savior's fountains. Our souls will come forth full of life, all pure and dazzling with heavenly beauty. Not one spot of their old defilements will be left, and the Father will love us with the love wherewith he loves his own Son. Where did he deliver up unto death this his tenderly beloved Son? Was it not that he might regain us, the children whom he had lost? We had become by our sins the possession of Satan. Hell had undoubted claims upon us, and lo, we have been suddenly snatched from both, and all our primitive rights have been restored to us. Yet God used no violence in order to deliver us from our enemy. How comes it then that we are now free? Listen to the Apostle. Ye are bought at a great price. And what is this price? The Prince of the Apostles explains it. Know ye, says he, that ye were not redeemed with the corruptible things as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled. This divine blood was placed in the scales of God's justice, and so far did it outweigh our iniquities as to make the bias in our favor. The power of this blood has broken the very gates of hell, severed our chains, and made peace both as to the things on earth and the things that are in heaven. Let us receive upon us, therefore, this precious blood, wash our wounds in it, and sign our foreheads with it as with an indelible mark which may protect us on the day of wrath from the sword of vengeance. There is another object most dear to the church which she during these two weeks recommends to our deepest veneration. It is the cross, the altar upon which our incomparable victim is immolated. Twice during the course of the year, that is, on the feasts of its invention and exaltation, this sacred wood will be offered to us that we may honor it as the trophy of our Jesus' victory. But now it speaks to us, but of his sufferings. It brings to us no other idea, but that of his humiliation. God had said in the ancient covenant, Accursed is he that hangeth on a tree. The lamb that saved us disdained not to suffer this curse. But for that very cause, this tree, this wood of infamy, has become dear to us beyond measure. It is the instrument of our salvation. It is the sublime pledge of Jesus' love for us. On this account, the church is about to lavish her veneration and love upon it, and we intend to imitate her and join her in this, as in all else she does. In adoring gratitude towards the blood that has redeemed us, and the loving veneration of the Holy Cross, these are the two sentiments which are to be uppermost in our hearts during these two weeks. But for the Lamb himself, for him that gave us this blood and so generously embraced the cross that saved us, What shall we do? It is not just that we should keep close to him, and that more faithful than the apostles who abandoned him during his passion, we should follow him day by day, nay, hour by hour, in the way of the cross that he treads for us. Yes, we will be his faithful companions during these last days of his mortal life, when he submits to the humiliation of having to hide himself from his enemies. We will envy the lot of those devoted few, who shelter him in their houses and expose themselves by this courageous hospitality to the rage of his enemies. We will compassionate his mother, who suffered an anguish that no other heart could feel because no other creature could love him as she did. 
we will go in spirit into that most hated Sanhedrin where they are laying the impious plot against the life of the just one. Suddenly we shall see a bright speck gleaming on the dark horizon. The streets and squares of Jerusalem will re-echo with the cry of Hosanna to the son of David. That unexpected homage paid to our Jesus, those palm branches, those shrill voices of admiring Hebrew children, will give a momentary truce to our sad forebodings. Our love shall make us take part in the loyal tribute thus paid to the King of Israel, who comes so meekly to visit the daughter of Zion, as the prophet had foretold he would. But alas, this joy will be short-lived, and we must speedily relapse into our deep sorrow of soul. The traitorous disciple will soon strike his bargain with the high priests. The last pasch will be kept, and we shall see the figurative lamb give place to the true one, whose flesh will become our food, and his blood our drink. It will be our Lord's Supper. Clad in the nuptial robe, we will take our place there, together with the disciples, for that day is the day of reconciliation, which brings together to the same holy table both the penitent sinner and the just that has been ever faithful. Then we shall have to turn our steps towards the fatal garden, where we shall learn what sin is, for we shall behold our Jesus agonizing beneath its weight and asking some respite from his eternal Father. Then in the dark hour of midnight, the servants of the high priests and the soldiers led on by the vile Iscariot will lay their impious hands on the Son of God, and yet the legions of angels who adore him will be withheld from punishing the awful sacrilege. After this, we shall have to repair to the various tribunals whither Jesus is led and witness the triumph of injustice. This time that elapses between his being seized in the garden and his having to carry his cross up the hill of Calvary will be filled up with the incidents of his mock trial, lies, calumnies, the wretched cowardice of the Roman governor, the insults of the bystanders, and the cries of the ungrateful populace thirsting for innocent blood. We shall be present at all these things. Our love will not permit us to separate ourselves from that dear Redeemer, who is to suffer them for our sake, for our salvation. Finally, after seeing him struck and spit upon, and after the cruel scourging and the frightful insult of the crown of thorns, we will follow our Jesus up Mount Calvary. We shall know where his sacred feet have trod by the blood that marks the road. We shall have to make our way through the crowd, and as we pass, we shall hear terrible imprecations utter against our divine master. Having reached the place of execution, we shall behold this august victim stripped of his garment, nailed to the cross, hoisted into the air, as if the better to expose him to insult. We will draw near to the tree of life, that we may lose neither one drop of that blood which flows for the cleansing of the world, nor one single word spoken for its instruction by our dying Jesus. We will compassionate his mother, whose heart is pierced through with the sword of sorrow. We will stand close to her when her son, a few moments before his death, shall consign us to her fond care. After his three hours' agony, we will reverently watch his sacred head bow down and receive with adoring love his last breath. A bruised and mangled corpse, stiffened by the cold of death, this is all that remains to us of that Son of Man, whose first coming into the world caused us such joy. The Son of the Eternal Father was not satisfied with emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. 
This, his being born in the flesh, was but the beginning of his sacrifice. His love was to lead him even unto death, even to the death of the cross. He foresaw that he would not win our love save at the price of such a generous immolation, and his heart hesitated not to make it. Let us therefore love God, says St. John, because God first loved us. This is the end the Church proposes to herself by the celebration of these solemn anniversaries. After humbling our pride and our resistance to grace by showing us how divine justice treats sin, she leads our hearts to love Jesus who delivered himself up in our stead to the rigors of that justice. Woe to us if this great week failed to produce in our souls a just return towards him who loved us more than himself, though we were and had made ourselves his enemies. Let us say with the Apostle, The charity of Christ presseth us, that they who live may not now live to themselves, but unto him who died for them. We owe this return to him who made himself a victim for our sake, and who, up to the very last moment, instead of pronouncing against us the curse we so justly deserved, prayed and obtained for us mercy and grace. He is one day to reappear on the clouds of heaven, and as the prophet says, men shall look upon him whom they have pierced. God grant that we may, of the number of those who, having made amends by their love for the crimes they have committed against the divine Lamb, will then find confidence at the sight of those wounds. Let us hope that by God's mercy, the holy time we are now entering upon will work such a happy change in us that on the day of judgment we may confidently fix our eyes on him we are now about to contemplate crucified by the hands of sinners. The death of Jesus puts the whole of nature in commotion. The midday sun is darkened. The earth is shaken to its very foundations. The rocks are split. May it be that our hearts too be moved and pass from indifference to fear, from fear to hope, and, at length, from hope to love, so that having gone down with our crucified to the very depths of sorrow, we may deserve to rise again with him unto light and joy, beaming with the brightness of his resurrection, and having within ourselves the pledge of a new life, which shall then die no more. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.